Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Father, we ask that you would be gracious. Holy Spirit, we ask that just as Jesus said that he was going to send you to help us understand your words, that you would do that for us this morning. That we would understand not just with our minds intellectually what it means to be born again, but that our hearts would be softened. And that you would do divine heart surgery on us and give us a new heart. God, I just, I can't wait to see what you do in the lives of us this morning. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know that we've been going through a series called the Gospel. And in this series, I've said that we're going to take a look at five different kind of main words. God, man, redemption, renewal, and glory. God, man, redemption, renewal, and glory. So far, we've, we've looked at the God part of it, we've looked at the man part of it, and last week we started the redemption, and this morning we're going to carry out the next part of redemption. Now, if you're really paying attention, you'll notice that for each word, we've looked at two different aspects. Brenda pointed that out when I had given her the uh, name of the sermon. She's like, I kind of have a feeling we're going to be looking at redemption again, and I was like, bingo! We are. So far, up to this point, we've seen an everlasting God. That he is from everlasting, that he is infinite, that he is omnipotent, that he is all-knowing. That there's never been a time that he hasn't existed. And from there, we looked at that that infinite, holy, righteous, sinless God is the creator of everyone and everything. You and me, plants, animals, the atmosphere, the sky, clouds, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, all of it. From the, the, the largest animal to the smallest microscopic cell, he's created it all. And from there, then, we looked at how the pinnacle of his whole creation, he created you and I. He created man in his image and likeness. Out of all his creation, he he looked at you and me, he looked at people, and he said, it is you that's created in my image and likeness. To do what? To, To steward his creation, but then also to make more image bearers. Or in another way, what we could say is that God created humans to be his representatives. But Adam and Eve being the first representatives of the human race, they were tempted by the serpent 
to be like God, to reject his authority, to pursue their own authority, and through that, sin entered the world, fracturing everything that we know and separating us from our good and holy God. Now, because you and I, we've been stamped in the image and likeness of God, that just, that just didn't go away. When we sinned, that didn't go away. That was fractured, that was broken, but that's still uniquely us. We still bear the image of God. And, and part of bearing the image of God means that we've got this moral code that's written in us. It's just in the fabric of our DNA, this, this moral code of right and wrong. We, we have this moral compass. And this is something that you don't even necessarily need to teach children. They just have it naturally hardwired into them. And yet we live in this strange season in the 21st century where truth and morality is almost relative, isn't it? Like there's this strangeness that, that there's really no truth and there's really no morality, but, but my morality can be true. And if you just don't touch with my morality, then I'm all right with your morality, as long as you agree with my morality. <laughs> you see the strangeness of it? And what makes this even more strange is, is we, we come up with, with these different ideas that morality is relative, that it's, it's only in my sphere of influence. I'll make up my own morality, but then there's a thing called cancel culture. Like, I don't know about you, but I think about that, and I think how insane that is. How, how we in the 21st century can think about morality as just my own rules and lists, and yet, then I'm okay with saying that you're wrong with something. We live in this very strange and peculiar season where morality is relative. And yet, the reason why we have this moral compass is because God hardwired us to have it. He hardwired us. Humans, like, like there is a, a reason why when you go to Yellowstone, they say, if you see a bear, try to avoid it. Because a bear is, does not have this, this moral compass. It'll rip off your face and eat you like a Lunchable and walk away not feeling guilty at all. It doesn't have the moral compass. We do. And if you say that, your moral compass is different, and it's all right that it's different. What's really happening is this is still showing people that there is a divine creator who created you to have a moral compass. This is what Romans 2 teaches us. This is what Paul says to the Gentiles. Maybe you don't have the, the law of God, but if you say, well, I think murder is a pretty bad thing, you are bearing witness and testifying that there is a creator. If you're saying, well, maybe you, you, you shouldn't steal, then you're testifying and bearing witness that there is a creator because there is this moral compass that is written on our hearts whether we are aware of it or not. And because I'm just, I'm so convinced of what Scripture teaches, I'm convinced that when you die, 
And if you don't put your trust in Jesus and repent of your sin, you will plead with God and try to justify with God your own morality. Well, I didn't have a face tattoo, God, so I should get into heaven. I I, I only watched PG-13 movies, God. I I should get into heaven. I didn't murder anyone. That seems like a, a pretty good thing to get me into heaven. And I just want to be proactive of warning you and telling you that morality will not get you into heaven. It can't. You must be born again. This is what I hope to show us this morning in in our passage, is that morality will not get you into heaven. You must be born again. And what we will do is we'll look at this in three different ways, or, or hopefully what we'll do is we'll unfold this by looking at being born of the Spirit. We'll look at what it looks like or means to be born of the flesh, and we'll look at how God's love influences us being born again. So let's take a look here at being born of the Spirit. This is where we get to our passage for this morning, verses 3 through 8. And we see within our passage that there are, the text is kind of broken up into to two different ways. We see Jesus making more of a, a general call, and then we see him making more of a specific call or a personal call. And we see this general call in verses 3 through 6. But before we get to 3 through 6, we need to know and understand a little bit about the context here. Now, most of us understand this context, who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to a Pharisee, not just a a Pharisee, but the teacher of teachers of Pharisees. A man named Nicodemus. He is a, a great teacher. Now, like, what type of teacher uh, Nicodemus is, is he, he's like, what we could say is that he is, he's the professor to the seminary professors. This was Nicodemus's role. He was the, the great teacher. He was the professor who was teaching all of the other professors. And we see that Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this great teacher, has to tuck away. He, he, he's like, He's trying to figure out how to get to Jesus, and he says, i got to get to Jesus in the middle of the night, because if people see me, the great teacher, talking to Jesus, they'll start to wonder. My status, my reputation will take a hit. And there's a thing about Nicodemus that's, uh, that we can admire, is that out of the Pharisees, Nicodemus recognizes that there's something a little bit different about Jesus. Uh, The passage actually tells us that when Nicodemus is talking to to Jesus, Nicodemus says, we understand that you have to be from God because only you do things that that a prophet could do from God. So he's acknowledging Jesus as somebody special. And then we get to our passage and we see that Jesus doesn't throw any punches. Jesus gets down to business. He, He gets... He gets straight to the point. Jesus answers Nicodemus, truly, truly. Now this right here, this truly, truly, while Nicodemus and Jesus are talking in the middle of night would have made Nicodemus sit up straight. 
It would have made him say what Jesus is about to say is something important. This truly, truly is an emphasis. So what Jesus is about to say is important. So this should cause us to sit straight up and say, okay, Jesus, what are you about to say? And Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus wasn't even asking this question. He wasn't even asking the question of how do you get the kingdom of how do you get to the kingdom of God? Jesus knew what Nicodemus wanted, and so right away he tells him, You must be born again. If you even want to see the kingdom of God with your eyes, you must be born again, Nicodemus. And how does Nicodemus respond? Nicodemus responds in, in a kind of like a, a playful, defensive uh, answer. It's, it's one of those answers where you're, you're a tad bit defensive, but you don't want the person to know that you're defensive, so you're going to make a bit of a joke about it. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Nicodemus knows the answer to this. But think about who Nicodemus is and what he just heard Jesus say. We've already acknowledged that Nicodemus sees Jesus as this person who is sent by God because Jesus can do these miracles. And so he's taking what Jesus has to say serious. Nicodemus has staked his whole life and reputation on the reality that if I just obey the law of God, then I'm getting into the kingdom. And this is what Nicodemus is going around teaching people. That if you obey the the law of God, if you live this moral life according to God's commandments and laws, then you're in. You're good. You're holy. You're getting into the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus, he's staking his whole reputation on this belief that if you obey the law of God perfectly, then you're in the kingdom. And now Jesus is telling him, no, it's not by obeying the law of God, it's by being born again. He's staked his whole career, this this old man, Nicodemus, he's staked his career on this. The, the professor to seminary professors. This man who, who was a, a great and respected teacher. He's lived a full life. He's worked his whole life to this moment of being in this position of authority. And now Jesus is telling him, if you want to see the kingdom of God, it's not by obeying the law of God, it's by being born again. Imagine the shock to Nicodemus. Already acknowledging that Jesus is somebody, they just can't figure it out, and now this somebody's telling him, it's not the law that gets you into the kingdom. Not even allows you to see the kingdom. This would have been a shock for Nicodemus. So how does Jesus respond? He says, truly, truly, here we go again. Nicodemus is sitting up straight. 
He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, some people will look at this passage and they'll say, okay, born of water. That means baptism. That's what some people will will say, that you can't truly be be born again or you can't truly have salvation unless you are baptized, which then would not include the thief on the cross who Jesus said, today I will see you in paradise. Now, Now look, I am a Baptist. I believe that, that, that you, should, you should be baptized when you repent and you trust in Jesus. I believe that it's a, it's a response of obedience to your trust in Jesus. How ca- countercultural, or not countercultural, but, but how counter to Jesus' message would this be if we looked at this and we said, Okay, Jesus is saying that it's not of any work, it's not by following the law, but you have to be baptized in order to be saved. We've turned baptism then into a means of works for salvation, so it couldn't possibly be that. Now what is Jesus saying here? Jesus knows that Nicodemus is a man of the law of God. He knows that Nicodemus knows the prophets. He's this great teacher. So what's Jesus doing? Jesus here is is quoting what what people will call the the new covenant in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 24 through 27. Uh, God, he tells Ezekiel that he will cleanse a people. And, And cleansing with water is this image of forgiveness. So what Jesus is saying here is that you must be born of water. You must be forgiven by God. And if you were to go on and look at the rest of what God says to Ezekiel, he tells Ezekiel that that he will give this people a new heart. He will cut out their heart of stone and he will replace within them a heart of flesh. He will give them his spirit. He will put one spirit within this people. So what Jesus is doing is Jesus is just quoting the, the new covenant. He's, he's saying, look, you, you remember what Ezekiel prophesied back there? He, he prophesied that there would be a cleansing of people's uh, sins, that there would be this, this uh, forgiveness that would take place. And that there would be the Spirit that then would go into them. So what we see is that those who are born again are those who are forgiven, who have received the righteousness of Christ and now have the Spirit of God that dwells within them. It can't be a work. Let me, let me maybe, this is, this is a bit of a silly illustration, but I was thinking about this this, this, this morning. When I was interning at a church, there was a friend of mine. I was really close with him. Uh, He came up to me one Sunday morning after the service, and he said, hey, Max, um, you know know that I work on a farm. I got these brand-new boots for like $100. I got them on a discount. Um, They were like $250, but I got them on a discount. Um, Would you like to have them? You you can have them if you want. And I was like, okay, I guess I I need some boots. It's... it's, uh, it's winter time. And he said, okay, you can, you can have them. Just go ahead and pay me whatever you want. 
Here I, here I thought he was saying, you can, you can have them for free, here you go. This isn't what Jesus is trying to communicate here. He's not trying to say, hey, here's this free gift, but you just go ahead and pay me whatever you want to. No, this is, this is a, a free gift that is not a, a work that you can do to earn it. It's not something like, like baptism that you can do to, to earn this, this gift. It is a, a free gift. It is the gift of the Spirit coming into us. And how does Jesus illustrate this for us? He, he tells us, he says, that which is born of the flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Or another way that we might put it is, that which is of the flesh produces the flesh. And that which is the Spirit produces the Spirit. The flesh does not produce spiritual things. It can't. It won't. The flesh will only produce the flesh. And the Spirit will produce the Spirit. This is what he's communicating to Nicodemus. He's saying, what, what, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, you're relying on the law to produce spiritual things in your heart. And it doesn't work like that. Because only the Spirit can produce spiritual things. You can't do anything. You can't conjure up some type of work in and of yourself to produce spiritual things. This is why when we, when we look at the book of Acts and we see this man called Simon the magician and he's seeing the apostles going around doing spiritual things and he says to them, how, how much can I pay you for the Spirit? Peter says, you can't pay me anything for this. Go and repent. Look, there's, this, there's like this, this idea that crept into to the church at one point where, where this idea was that, that if, you just, if you pray to this prayer and you ask Jesus into your heart, boom, the Spirit then can come into you. And we don't realize that what we do is we make that into a thing of works where we say, all you need to do is pray this magical prayer and the Spirit's inside of you. Let me try illustrating it like this. You know, I have seen two births and I'll see a third birth in, in about a month and a half. And there hasn't been a time so far in those two births that I've seen either my son Haddon or Ezekiel contribute anything to the birthing process. Okay, they didn't just pop out and say, here, let me help. They passively received life. It wasn't them that took on the initiative to come. They passively received life. Just like when the Spirit comes, we receive the Spirit. It is not a, a work in and of yourself to receive the Spirit. This is why Jesus then, as he continues, he tells Nicodemus, don't marvel at being born again. I mean, how many times do, do we do this? How many times does the intellectualism of, of petty arguments keep us out of the kingdom of God? How many petty arguments of intellectualism have you had with people that they just can't get past themselves and their own intellectualism, and so therefore they don't come into the kingdom of God because they say, well, I just can't understand it. You're not supposed to be able to understand the fullness of God. 
That's the whole point, is that God is an incomprehensible God. That's why we started where we started, is that God is from everlasting and to everlasting. Is that we as humans aren't supposed to know much about God. I remember reading my, my senior year of, of college and, and, and being struck by this reality. You realize, like, for the Christian, when you go to heaven, you still won't understand the fullness of who God is. And then in 10,000 years, while you are still worshiping God and understanding and learning about who He is, you still won't understand the vastness of God. And then in a million years, as you're still continuing to worship, still continuing to live for Him, with Him, in His created heaven, you still won't understand understand the vastness of who God is. And yet we say, until I can understand every jot and tittle of who God is, I will not enter the kingdom of God. Don't let your intellectualism keep you from, under, or from coming into the kingdom of God. That's not me saying, don't be intellectual. That's me saying, don't let petty intellectualism keep you from the kingdom of God. Here's Nicodemus. He's marveling at being born again. And Jesus is saying, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Your attention is on the wrong thing. Because he finishes this part by then saying, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. He's saying, look, Nicodemus, you've come to me and you've said that you're seeing things going on. You're seeing the Spirit move in and among people and around us, and yet you have no idea and you're trying to understand where this Spirit has come. It would be easier for you to try to think about where that wind came from that blew the clothes on the clothesline. It would be easier for you to think about where the wind stopped as it rustled the leaves over there in that tree. Nicodemus, you're thinking about the wrong things. You're thinking and marveling about what it means to be born again and you're not really asking yourself the question, am I born again? Have I experienced the indwelling presence of the Spirit? If you're born of the flesh, this won't make sense to you. It can't make sense to you. And it will drive you insane trying to make sense of it. Because you are not born of the Spirit, but born of the flesh. And look, this was me. This was me. I remember growing up uh, when, when I was in fourth or, or fifth grade, we started going to this church. And so I would tell my friends, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I go, I go to church. And then I remember one time my, my dad taking uh, me down to Green Bay at this little Christian uh, like store and I saw this sweatband where there was this image of Jesus in the basketball logo, and on the bottom it said, I am, and so I would wear this sweatband around my knee during my, my middle school basketball games, and, and I would always touch it before every game, because I was like, okay, you know, if I touch this and I'm a Christian, then God will bless me. And so I was looking at my church attendance, 
as a means of my salvation, of being born again. And then this came to a head in, in high school when I, when I was in this volatile relationship. It was a very just perverted relationship. You know, some people say it's like gas and fire. It was more like an atomic bomb. And, and like you think, okay, the way to disarm an atomic bomb is just shoot another atomic bomb at it. Like I was this angry, perverted teenager looking for just uh, uh, um, acceptance from whoever I could find it from. And in this relationship, I started noticing and recognizing, hey, I'm a pretty bad person. And, and this person seems to be hurting me quite a bit. And there was one night when I was laying in bed before bed and I was like, okay, God, like if you just help me out here, then I'll trust in you. And for six years, I looked at that and I reasoned to myself why that was the moment that the Spirit came into me. All the while, never caring about the Gospel. Never caring about anything of obedience towards God. There was this self-righteousness in my own heart where I would tell myself, if I could just clean up this aspect or this area of my life and, and the, this conviction can go away, then I'm good. Then God is proud of me. Then God is happy. And as soon as this area of, of, uh, this area of conviction was cleaned up, I would look at another area of conviction and say, oh, if I could just clean up this area of conviction, then, then the conviction will go away. All the while, what the Spirit was trying to do was woo me to surrender to Christ fully. And what I was doing was saying, if I just clean this part up, then I'll be good. All the while, never realizing that I didn't have the Spirit of God in me. Look, it went so far as I could justify why I was such a good person because I was the one going to a Christian college. I was taking these Bible classes. I was going to these chapels. I was fasting. I was praying for good grades just to, to pass my English class. I was trying to do the right thing. And then I got married, still convinced because of my good works. I was in. I was golden. I was fine. I was righteous. And this all came ahead when I was 22 when I picked up a sermon by the man named uh, Charles Spurgeon, and I started realizing, I don't know Jesus like that. And he men mentions a guy named John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, and if you were to prick John Bunyan, he would bleed Bible. And I was like, that's interesting. So I picked up this allegory called The Pilgrim's Progress, and I started reading that, and I said to myself, I don't know Jesus like this allegory is pointing out. I'm not aware of my sin like this allegory is pointing out. And then I pick up another book or I was given another book called The Cross-Centered Life and I started saying, I don't know Jesus like this guy is saying. I thought I was a pretty good person. I was even going to, I'm going to school to, to be a pastor. Doesn't that make it good enough? And it all came to a head one night while Sharice and I are laying in bed and I'm reading the Bible and she's reading something on her phone and, and I'm reading, the par not the parable, but the interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler. And it gets to the part 
where the disciples are confused, saying, if there's anyone that can enter the kingdom of heaven, it's surely this guy. Look at how impressive he is. He's kept everything. He's, he's willing to be on our team, Jesus. And Jesus says, but he's not willing to submit to me. And Jesus goes on to say, with man, this submission is impossible, but with God, all things are impossible. And it was as if a light went off and a peace that washed over and an assurance that entered into my heart where I could do nothing other than say, Christ has died for my sins. He has reconciled me to God. All of my works are like filthy rags that should be burnt up before Him. And yet how often in the church do we never work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We say, I go to church, I'm good. I woke up this morning and I prayed, I'm good. I read my Bible this morning, I'm good. I don't have a face tattoo, I'm good. I haven't murdered anyone, I'm fine. And do you understand the seriousness of this? Jesus tells us that there will be people who will say, Lord, Lord, did I not have all of this self-righteousness and done all of these things for you? And what does Jesus say? Depart from me, you wicked servant. You cannot and will never be born again based off of your own morality. You must have the Spirit of God indwelling in you to be born again. Like this is what I just want to get across to us is that your self-righteous religion will not be enough. But what Christ did is. Maybe you're here and you don't believe. I would say the same argument is for you too. Your self-righteous atheism will not be enough. Well, at least I'm not like those Christians. I'm more progressive. I'm more loving. I'm more tolerating and accepting. You see how there's still self-righteousness there? And, and what I'm saying is that when you meet your maker, what you're going to do, your natural reaction to try to avoid the, the fiery pits of hell is to, to rely on the good works that you did. Just to try to convince God to let you into heaven. And that still won't be enough. You know what's amazing about this passage? And why it's important for us to understand context? This is John 3, right? One of the most famous Bible verses comes from John 3. 
You know, one of the most famous Bible verses comes from John 3, and Jesus is actually saying that Bible verse to Nicodemus. Do you know that? That within the context of, for God so loved the world, Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus? Because as we're looking at this passage and we're seeing that Jesus is saying, you must be born again, and we're looking at Nicodemus and we're saying, well, surely Nicodemus is the guy to get in because he's this Pharisee of Pharisees. He is this this great teacher. He should get in, and if he can't get in, then who in the world can get in? Because if he can't get in, then I can't get in. And that's the point of this passage. We're supposed to ask the question, if somebody like Nicodemus can't get in, then who can get in? And Jesus is then saying in John 3.16-18 through this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order to uh, the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to be born again, believe in me. Trust in me. Look to me. I was sent to die for your sin. I was sent to bridge the gap. I was sent to reconcile you to God. I was sent to pay for your sins so that when you trust in me, the Holy Spirit would come into you. That you would be righteous. That you would be accepted. That you would be justified. That you would be seen as a beloved son or daughter in the eyes of your Creator, the one who created you and stamped you with His image and likeness. Jesus comes to die for your sins. He comes to live the life that you and I were to live, that we can't live. He comes so that way you could be born again by placing your trust in Him. It's not a work of your own, but it is the free gift of God. So what does this then lead us to? This leads us to a couple of points of application about being born again, because being born again leads to a change. And the change isn't just, isn't just being a better person than the next, than the next person. Being born again changes your affections and desires in this life. You look at everything in this life and you say, that doesn't compare to Jesus. Take my house, take my kids, take my wife, but you'll never take Jesus from me. Being born again changes your affections and your desires. It changes your affections and desires because you see how sinful you are. You see that you're totally unable and incapable of achieving or getting this salvation, but that it was freely given to you. So you have this affection and this desire to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Next, it changes in you your love for your neighbor. 
You're no longer just tolerant of your neighbor. You're no longer just friendly towards your neighbor. Like, like it's, it's not that you look at your neighbor and you say, oh, yeah, hi, nice to meet you. That's great. I'll see you next Sunday. No, it is this, how can I serve you and love you as I would love myself? What can I do for you that would force me to be uncomfortable? You understand the difference between being friendly and actually loving your neighbor. The person who loves their neighbor shows it through their actions. The person who is friendly gives just a head nod or a polite hello and a Midwesterner or a Wisconsinite, I'm doing fine, how are you? The last way that we see the born-again person living is that their motivations in life change. Is that instead of living for your own self-righteousness, instead of living for your own goals, your motivation, it changes. That whatever you would do, you would do to the glory of God. This is the question that we must work out with fear and trembling. I'm calling us to do nothing different than what Paul calls the church in Philippi to do, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. This is what I'm calling you to do this morning. I'm calling you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to prepare yourself and ready, for your, ready yourself to meet your maker one day. And to ask the question, are you truly born of the Spirit? Or do you rely on your moral impressiveness that at least I'm not like that jerk who cut me off? Are you born of the Spirit or born of the flesh? That's the question that I'm asking you. And so, some of you are probably getting a little frustrated with me. How dare you call me to be born of the Spirit? How dare you tell me not to rely on my works to save me? If this is you, I would just like to humbly plead with you two, in two ways. One is I'd like to warn you that that is a sign of self-righteousness that has been built up in your heart, which could lead to either a backslidden love for Christ or it may even show that you truly do not know Christ like you think you do and that you are not born again at all. The next person is the person who is feeling this weight and understanding that you've relied on your moral religiosity, your moralism as your means of assurance for salvation. If that is you, don't wait any longer. Surrender to Christ right now. Surrender at this moment. Don't wait another moment. Surrender. But for some of you, you're in a season of doubt. You truly are born again. You truly do love Christ. But for whatever reason, there is a season of doubt in your heart right now that is causing you to ask the question at this very moment, am I truly born again? 
It's not my intention to try to make you doubt or, 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 or cause you to doubt. But if this is you, look to this passage right here and tell yourself over and over again and continue then to tell yourself over and over again that it is not my works. I am not saved based off of anything I've done. I'm saved and made right with God based off of what Christ has done. Continue to preach that message to yourself. And then preach it again and again until your heart catches up with what your mouth is saying to you. The only way that we will see and enter into the kingdom of heaven is if we are born of the Spirit. If we are forgiven of our sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that while yet we were still sinners, you sent your Son Christ to die for us. And so I ask at this very moment, if there are those who are feeling a sense of conviction from your Spirit, that you would be gentle and kind to them. That you would lead them to repentance or that you would wash them with assurance. Oh God, we thank you that it could not and could never be us and our own works to save us. But that it could only be of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you send the Holy Spirit to make us right with you. Amen.